This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor of the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Shane Nielsen, who is a disabled poet, physician, and critic. Shane completed his PhD in English and Cultural Studies at McMaster University in 2018. He recently received the Governor General's Gold Medal for his dissertation in Disability Studies and the Regional Dean's Award of Excellence in Medical Education for his work on disability in McMaster University's medical faculty. Shane has written a compelling article on ableism in the medical profession and is joining me today from his home in Oakville. Good morning, Shane. Hey, Dorian. How you doing? Good. So listen, I just wonder if we could start off by clarifying what you mean when you use the word ableism. And that's going to segue us to move on to the bigger picture, which is, if I understand your argument correctly, really about improving the way we work together as doctors. But it's even bigger than that. It's about building a better society. So let's start right here with a basic definition. What do you mean when you use the word ableism? The definition of the term is protean, I think. Different people will ascribe different meanings uh, to the word. I've even seen in disability studies contexts, it mean the opposite of what I thought it to mean. But I do have a definition and I defined it on purpose in a, in a book uh, that I published last year called Constructive Negativity, uh, Prize Culture, Evaluation and Disability in Canadian Poetry. It's the very first book of uh, literary criticism published in Canada devoted to uh, disabled writers. So I figured I had to have a definition in that and I'll just read that to you. So Ableism is a constellation of ideas, beliefs, and practices that marginalize ill, non-neurotypical, and non-normative bodies. Ableism prefers not to be called what it is, mainly through the organization of social space, such that persons who are unwell or who require certain physical accommodations in order to participate in that space are not present, leaving those inclined to detect ableism out of the room. The physical fact of ableism in the course of Canadian life is obvious, something that can be seen at a glance at ubiquitous non-AODA conforming structures. That's one definition. Um, in a shorter form, ableism could be described as the both conscious and unconscious prejudice um, directed towards people who are unwell or who do not have uh, normative bodies. Now, in your powerful article, you mentioned that ableism is a, something you've had to negotiate and resist all your life. Can you tell me why that is and what kind of what your experience has been like? God, this is an intergenerational story. It doesn't it doesn't begin with me. It begins several generations back. But what I do know is that my grandmother was uh, non neurotypical, and we're talking about someone who lived in the St. John River Valley in uh, rural New Brunswick. Um, so. Resources were few, and uh, and the identification of such things was uh, was was rare. Anyway, she was unwell, 
and eventually she was recognized to have bipolar disorder and was treated later on in her life with lithium, and that made quite a significant difference. But she gave birth to my father, who also was non-neurotypical. He had a career in illness, which um, I really understand better now as a 44-year-old person five years, uh, a few years after his death. He was bipolar as well, but never recognized as such because that would have been admitting to weakness or some sort of problem. So he lived very chaotic, uh, sometimes violent, and very uh, dramatically fraught life, but was always kind of perceived by others as being bad. You know, he was a bad man. And I can't contest that either because that's also so. But uh, the trick is, there wasn't a vocabulary or a compassion directed towards him such that his particular needs were identified and treated. So that's how things start. I'm mean, the son of such a person raised in a violent, uh, mentally ill kind of environment. And so I was born strange, so to speak, and was never identified myself for being so. Because to do so would, of course, uh, admit that I was, I was somehow, um, my, my father and my mother would have had to recognize that, you know, I was strange and that would have carried social stigma um, outside the home. I mean, I'm, I'm just surmising this because I haven't had the chance, unfortunately, to talk to them about this after their deaths. It's kind of an awakening that I've had afterwards, right? Mm. But, but anyway, moving quickly forward, um, extensive bullying uh, in school for being, for being me. Um, moving on to medical school in which I was uh, flagrantly unwell with bipolar disorder rep, cycling through all the years of my, all the years of my uh, training, um, recognized as bad without uh, any sort of compassionate gesture towards uh, help, save for a few well-disposed people within the faculty. It was a pretty negative, uh, negative experience. I still, I still experienced a little bit of a shudder looking back. And now that I've uh, finally, to conclude, um, now that I've successfully been identified, I guess, and uh, have successfully been treated, that doesn't mean that things are better. So this is one of the things I think that medicine wants to vent to itself as some sort of success story. It wants to say, you know, we can identify illness and then we can treat it. And if we treat it, then, um, you know, that person can go on and be well and be productive and uh, be functional. But as many of us also know, the story isn't so simple and that chronic illness can endure despite uh, treatment with medication. And so I'm altered, I would say, um, towards the world based on my speech, based on my patterns of speech and the long paragraphical bubbles in which I talk. And based on, you know, still symptoms poking through, not just poking through, I guess that's kind of uh, the wrong metaphor. That's still, that's still enmeshed that metaphor in the old thinking. It's more, it's more like the the strangeness is a fabric of uh, of myself. It's always been there and always will be. And I don't uh, I don't look upon my current state of being as something that needs to be um, uh, medicalized out of uh, out of existence. So so it sounds like you're bringing to the conversation a different idea or a different concept of what it means to be healthy. It's that healthy isn't just a pristine state. But it's rather something that, that you or perhaps, I guess, like all of us have to win and lose through the course of our life. You mentioned this strangeness, this feeling. Did you mean by that, that your sense of the experience of medication changing the way you think in some way or changing your experience in life? Or what did you mean by that? It's a hard question to answer. Um, because for the longest time, I thought that all... Uh, my entire 
uh, self could be uh, described accurately or summed up um, adequately under uh, a category provided to me by the DSM, right? So, so uh, I was someone who had, uh, you know, bipolar one disorder and that therefore um, was the lens with which to view my previous behavior and my current self and my future self. But it's no longer the way, it's of course no longer the way that I, that I view the way I negotiate the world because it's, it's so utterly simplistic. And this isn't, you know, of course, a new idea. There's been lots of theories of, uh, of wellness and, you know, there's ideas that say we're currently a, a balance. It's an equilibrium between uh, wellness and illness. Um, it's not completely 100% binaristically one or the other. What I was getting at though, and I, I wanted to push a little bit on this because uh, I know a lot of people as well have asked this question of what role do medications play in changing ourself or our perception of ourself? And has this journey of you that you've taken, has that sort of brought you to perceive yourself differently depending on what, what, how you engage, say, with the, with the products of, of biotechnology? Uh, well, you know, I, I do have some anti-psychiatry colleagues, right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, there's lots to criticize in all brands of, in all brands of medicine, but uh, I can't say that medications have changed my personality. Um, if anything, uh, they kept me alive um, mm. because if I hadn't uh, if I hadn't subscribed to taking them, then I would still be on that very difficult trajectory um, that I allude to in the piece. Um, you know, in which during my third year of uh, third year of residency in the emergency department in uh, Halifax. Actually jumped off, uh, jumped off a balcony. Uh, so I'm glad that the medicine is there to prevent things like that. I do know, I do know though, that I have many, many, many other people. I know many others, um, not necessarily anti-psychiatry uh, individuals uh, who are radicalized or even academics who, who subscribe to the same ideas. But I know many other people with lived experience in mental illness, both schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major mental illness, schizoaffective disorder, who do attest to um, the medications changing fundamentally their sense of self. But that's not been, that's not been my experience, per se. So that's not, that's not me. I'm curious about how you became an activist for patients, but also for doctors with disabilities. And yeah. I think that's a, that's a huge shift in how you're perceived uh, increasingly uh, in, in Canadian medicine. And how did that come about? Yeah, I'm ready to answer this one. <laughs> I, uh, I'm laughing because, you know, it's been a whole life. Uh, it's been a whole life spent under the boot of being misperceived, um, attributed to be hostile or negative. Um, but really just being socially uh, socially on the outside of things, and as a result, the um, the negative perceptions intensifying. Uh, there's so many instances I can tell you about anecdotes uh, in which I have uh, been, and I will use the word oppressed, that I've taken that energy as a, uh, uh, I've taken that energy and directed it towards um, constructive activities that I can that I can do myself to aid the plight of my people who are the mentally ill. So uh, what do I do? Well, uh, one thing I do is I um, am the director of the Abel Hamilton 
Poetry Festival. It's a disability poetics festival that runs every year. It's run uh, two years in a row, and this would be its third year in the fall. And what we do is we get uh, disabled poets from all around. We've had them from New Brunswick, and we've had poets from all around Ontario. We get them we get them to venues in Toronto, Hamilton, and Guelph, and we get them reading their work. And uh, it's the very first disability-related uh, specific literary festival held in the nation, to our to our knowledge. So I'm proud of that. The other um, the other thing I do is I will routinely write, uh, or I'm, I have been writing over the past couple of years. Um, articles in uh, medical context designed to uh, trouble the concept of uh, disability. Um, so there's an article coming out in, I think it's just published now, although I don't have the book because, you know, COVID. I've got an article coming out in a Rutledge, a Rutledge text edited by Andrea Carice and uh, Paul Crawford um, about the biomedical epistemology, uh, neoliberal, neoliberalism, and Vincent Lamb. Kind of troubling me the story that medicine tells itself about what um, health is and, and what, uh, what disability is and what, especially what burnout is. So I do a bunch of stuff. Um, those are just a couple of, a couple of things I do. Um, but I do, especially, and this is the thing I'd, I'd land on is I, I try to be myself, which is hard in medical contexts that are preconditionally hostile to anyone who is not presenting as normal. Like, I don't know, do you do medical school interviews? I don't. Yeah, I well, don't. You, they run, they, they have the uh, MMI, the multiple mini interview format that medical schools, many medical schools use, in which, you know, you sit in front of um, some interviewers in different stations and you move quickly and you have to provide very quick, concise answers to um, pertinent questions. That would slay me. I would get sliced to pieces by that. I would find it very difficult to process that kind of information uh, at that kind of uh, speed or rapidity and be able to recapitulate, you know, the right answer, give the right answer, have a tight, concise answer as you're probably, <laughs> as you're probably seeing the five different things or eight different things. I, I just, uh, I wouldn't be able to, I, I wouldn't get into medical school now because of the way that things are structured. And so, um, I really find it important to be different and be in medical context and still uh, practice medicine in a, in a conscientious uh, way, compassionate way. So, so far, we're, we're really talking a lot about this kind of idealized, standardized person, if you would. And, and we're talking about standardized testing, so it creates sort of a standardized type of physician, which is interesting unto itself. And we're going to come back to that and, and the implications for the medical workplace, quite honestly. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to touch on physical disability for a moment because I know a lot of our listeners will be dealing with physical disabilities. So does the stuff we're talking about here today apply equally to physical disabilities or are, uh, is it something we should bracket out and say, well, that's a whole slightly different topic? I think all is welcome under the sign of disability. Um, and of course, there's an, a relationship between both. And I think that it's part of the, to segregate them completely is part of a kind of uh, uh, the medical enterprise in itself, biomedicine, you know, uh, script, uh, uh, the Cartesian duality, you know, between the body and the mind. I think it's, uh, it's a mistake. There, there's a fundamental you know, interrelationship. But then there's also the practical heuristic saying these two can be separated and there are different somewhat. Um, so I think that you know, my answer is both yes and no. 
Um, I'd also say that I'm going to maybe take a risk, but I'm going to say that the physical disability element is largely a matter of accommodation that people understand. So if there's lacking accommodation, I'm not saying it's instantly given, and I'm not definitely not saying it's pre-given because there's lots of work that still needs to be done in medical context with regards to certain um, disabilities of which there's a, there's a Canadian uh, medical disability association, um, uh, Canadian association of uh, disabled physicians, CADP, um, who, who looks, looks at these sorts of things and talks about these sorts of things. Um, but I, I think that on some level, it just makes more sense and to someone, the average kind of physician or the average person on an, accom- on an accommodating level for a physical disability. There should be elevators. There should be uh, wheelchair accessible bathrooms. These are things that people fundamentally get inside. And I think that the stigmatization of physical disability, although this isn't a blanket statement, I think it's largely true, is less. But there is something really threatening at the heart of... Uh, mental illness and, uh, and invisible disability of that sort. There's some sort of legitimacy question, some sort of lack of agency, some threat. Um, and I think that stigma carries forward. And so in medical schools, I routinely will talk, uh, people will come to me and they'll talk about their struggles, the students will, and uh, they are absolutely terrified of um, declaring to uh, institutional power, both regulatory at the college level and also within the medical school that they're struggling. And the reason why is simple. They know what will happen, right? They have, a, they, have a, they have a thought about what will happen. They're largely overstating it, but I can't say they're wrong. Um, that stigma is powerful. And, uh, and I think that there are reasons why people are unwilling to disclose. And I think that has major consequences for the profession. And if that's true with the kids or the young people in school, that is that carries forward throughout the remainder of uh, professional life, as uh, you know, as as people in the physicians health program uh, know. You know, you're hitting something really fascinating and a bit of a spoiler alert. Coming back to that that body mind duality, and and if we're we're moving ahead, basically to talk about the more subtle administrative concepts that make up medicine and that that govern us. Let's put it this way. It's easier to talk about putting in a ramp for a building or, or, or an elevator for, for a building. And we can actually see that quite clearly. But it's, it's not so easy to talk about how licensing bodies or our administrative bodies, especially in, in a safety-sensitive occupation like, like medicine or profession like medicine, how governance works, which is really about surveillance for risk. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that, not only say among physicians, you could talk about airline pilots, um, for example. How do you manage risk and balance public safety with creating a more inclusive, compassionate workplace? I don't have a discrete answer, which could be immediately implemented across the land, but I do have some words that could perhaps guide the principles with which such could occur. And I would make a critique first to start off with and to state that the very language that is being used around safety and risk management is fundamentally unsafe for people like myself. It will be used to oppress us. That may not fly uh, from the college regulator, but that is the truth. It will be used to oppress us. There will be reasons and rationales and justifications that will become codified that will eventually result in us not being able to do what we would like to do in curtailing our professional and personal freedom. 
so let's unpack that because I think that's the huge, huge and, and fascinating set of problems you're bringing up. Say if you identify yourself as, as having a, a mental health disability, you're automatically put under the microscope. So anything at all that seems even the slightest bit out of a regulated norm or could be perceived as out of the norm could be jumped on as, as deviant. Is that what you're kind of getting at there or am, am I missing the point? I don't think that's wrong. I also think like the way you're phrasing it is, it seems like it's being set up to be extreme or almost a, an exponent placed on paranoia. But I, I do think that based on the lived experience that I have, one could say, well, that's extreme for anyone with mental illness, but it wouldn't be extreme for anyone who has had a particular career of mental illness of a particular sort and been to certain places and finds themselves within that regime and then can never escape from it based on the fact that uh, the regulator is thinking it's doing good. But I, I just want to give you like an example. I'll give you a very practical example so that you can understand what I mean. And it relates to an earlier question that you asked around some of the things that I'm doing in terms of disability activism. First of all, I think that it's important to do this kind of work in one's own kitchen, so to speak, one's own home, one's own immediate location. So along with another physician at the University of Guelph and a, and a partner that you may know, Juveria Zahir at, uh, uh, in Toronto, we uh, became um, concerned about the use, of, uh, uh, the use of handcuffs and physical restraints for uh, patients coming to our facility, seeking help, self-selecting for help. Uh, uh, you know, um, for, for suicidality. We, we became really um, concerned about that practice. And so we tried to change institutional practice in that regard. And we wrote a piece which uh, challenged the use of handcuffs in our local facility. That's a risky thing to do um, because, you know, you're going against the grain of, uh, of the institution. But the point that I want to make is embedded within the research that we did. And over and over and over and over and over again, and all the police documents that we read concerning the use of restraint policy when transferring patients to hospital and, and just simply apprehending people into the Mental Health Act, the rhetoric of safety kept popping up. And when it turns to safety, there's only one safe thing to do. It's to restrain. It's to intervene. When it becomes safety, you need the, it becomes quite complex. It's not necessarily so much about the safety of the person being transported anymore. It becomes the safety of the transporter. And then when we think of the safety of the transporter, we're no longer in the realm of clinical care, right? We're thinking something else. We're thinking about something else. So I do think that the language around safety can become troublesome, but at the same time, at the very same time, I recognize that the public needs to be protected. Absolutely. And that's the tricky balance. So finally, alighting on my one suggestion, my one kind of guidance principle for uh, the good people of the Physicians Health Program um, in its various instantiations across Canada and North America, it would be to have somebody informed with uh, uh, disability studies background somebody with lived experience of both, of both, of both kinds of, you know, so-called uh, binaristic kinds of physical and, and mental. I'd recommend that they, they have somebody there with that kind of knowledge so that medicine can know what it doesn't know. Cause you know, if we don't know what we don't know, then things won't change. We'll proceed along this line of surveillance. Well, that's kind of what I'm thinking that you, you're well positioned, you and other people who have who deal with uh, mental health disabilities are, are in a great position to talk about, for example, what's a, a person's, a physician in particular, what's a physician's ability 
to simply say, I'm, I'm not okay, I can't work, and I'm fine to do that reliably. I don't need an uh, excessive surveillance, perhaps. Is that, is that kind of where you're, where you're going, like trying to calibrate the system, make it more or less punitive? Um, what could you imagine as if you could wave a magic wand and have, have more lived experience uh, informing policies? What, would, what might that look like? That's tricky too. So, I mean, I've got another answer. Um, I don't know if it results in a, it's not a magic wand answer, but it's kind of a dream of mine. So um, on the, on the, uh, on the regulatory level, having somebody um, in tune with these issues from a disability justice perspective, I think would be very helpful. But in terms of the specific question you're asking about medicine more broadly, we have to come up against that thing called stigma. And if we actually changed things for physicians such that they could uh, acknowledge that they were seeking help without fear of the regulator, which is a real thing, as you know, um, then I think that we would win. That would be the win. So it would, so physicians would feel comfortable being able to seek the help that they rarely, you know, kind of access. Um, how do we do that? I think that's a multi-pronged, campaign, you know, I think that's really a tricky one. Uh, and I have a small way for that to occur. That's my own kind of idea. And that would be by once again, creating within medical faculties, meaningful uh, humanities infrastructure um, to promote these ideas, to critique medicine from within the inside in a constructive and not antagonistic fashion to get scholars in the institution to point things out, to give medicine basically a signal from within its belly that maybe something is amiss and that things should change. That would be my, that would be my suggestion. So creating like a center or institute or whatever it might be, or a department um, in which scholars of um, disability studies, but also uh, medical architecture and getting the medical sociologists involved. And of course, probably relying upon the, uh, the historians who are already there, science and technology studies like yourself, um, all sorts of different uh, social science and humanities disciplines together to um, let medicine change for the better uh, from within. I think that would be ideal, um, but that's not clearly the case any, anywhere in Canada. Well, I mean, it, it sounds like you have a, a, some fascinating ideas for reform, and reform is possible. I mean, I mean, medicine has gone through major reforms, uh, say, in, in the 1950s, uh, creating clinical trials as, as a way of framing knowledge. And this sounds like a new kind of reform that's, that's uh, gaining traction, perhaps. And uh, for safety-sensitive jobs, it, it, I still wonder if we can even look to other professions, say the pilots, uh, for example, who made major changes in the way they deal with, with pilots with mental health disabilities after the German wings catastrophe. Right. And I, I understand that it, it, that taking an antidepressant, for example, was look, was frowned upon to the point that you could be disallowed from flying. So, so many doctors, I mean, many pilots actually went without or, or certainly wouldn't talk about their issues and that's changed. It, it has, but we have a special resistance, right? We have a very special resistance. So I'm glad to hear that. And I think that, that, should, that that's cheering. Um, and that makes sense. In, in medicine, though, there is this uh, intensified resistance. It is our business as doctors to, you know, it's the way we're trained. It's kind of our epistemological basis is to divide, sort and divide normal into abnormal. Yes. And yes. there's a strange kind of... Uh, 
medicine is, is in that sense a bastion and uh, and also a single center of normativity, you know. So we have it. We have we have a greater a greater inner kind of resistance to such change, but I I still think we could make it. I do think though that the you know it's not the the pilots aren't uh, it's not their business to to be the arbiters of, uh, of what mental illness is and what it does much. You know, whereas, whereas we are, that is more so our, our domain. Yeah. Doctors are in, a, in an unusual position. So that then leads me to my next question then. So if you were to have some advice for people with mental health disabilities, either as patients or as learners who are encountering the medical system, what, what would that advice be? Oh, this is the, this is the sad, the sad part I have to say, what would my advice be to someone entering a place that's um, oriented against them? As, as much as things have changed, I must say this, uh, you know, when I being a bit elliptical, but when I, when I started as an assistant clinical professor at master a few years ago, I did so very warily, you know, very warily because I had such a terrible time when I was being trained. But I, I wanted to, you know, join the faculty and I wanted to do this, this stuff that I'm doing now, you know. So I met with, uh, met with someone who interviewed me and decided if I was uh, appropriate and proper enough, I guess. And in the course of that discussion, I asked a few questions which were designed to see just what would the fate be for someone who was struggling. And the way that such hypothetical people were discussed was compassionate. Um, it was a strange, it was a strange experience because I had seen uh, someone in authority discuss the plight of struggling people in a way that, you know, I would have myself wanted to be spoken of. So I got to say that although I have this very, very negative um, experience that's historical, it's 1996 to 2000, I'm cheered to say that things have improved quite substantially for um, the people who are struggling. It's no longer, I think, a, a intense pathologization as it was back back when that being said though what advice do i have i have two kinds of advice i have i have advice that's uh that i'd love to be able to give you know which would be if you are struggling with a problem then uh, please please seek seek help from the student affairs uh, dean you know uh please uh, access campus resources around mental health. Typically medical faculties will have their own special counselor designated from the university. Oh, please do that is what I would say. But um, realistically, uh, would I encourage someone to seek out help knowing the uh, stigma that exists and the fears that individuals have? And I think they're not invalid um, around uh, the match and future success. Hmm. I, you know, that's, that's troublesome, but I can say, I can say though, that if, if there's a, if there is a problem, if there is a, but even that word, I don't know if it's right. If someone's suffering from something, I don't even know if that word's right. Like the, eventually you study enough and you begin to problematize like every single word that, that exists. If, if there is an issue um, and it's not addressed, it will grow. It will grow probably. And it will become the thing that, uh, that becomes uh, something that's too powerful for you. So if there is a way to uh, address it, please, please try. Because I think at some point during our training and at some point in our lives, we walk past opportunities and we just have to notice that they're there. And they're often just based in a conversation or saying something or responding 
to compassion when it's directed towards one, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe just saying yes, when the opportunity comes towards you, uh, maybe that's, maybe that's a piece of advice I would give. Well, thanks for being honest about that. Well, we're coming to close to the end of our interview, but I, I don't think we can end the conversation without talking about COVID-19. Now, my wife and I are fortunate enough to be able to work from home. And I wonder if you could share with our listeners the impact of the pandemic on your life. It's been interesting, you know, all sorts of things that were thought impossible uh, are now possible, apparently, by this COVID in terms of the way medicine is being delivered and administered, it just took, uh, just took the viral apocalypse for us to change, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we're now much more available. We'll phone people, we'll talk to them um, through the computer. I've signed up for an account uh, on doxy.me um, at the behest of another physician who showed me how to use it. And that looks pretty good. I'm going to get that going, especially for my um, patients with uh, mental illness, of, of which forms the bulk of my practice at the at the University of Guelph. Uh, right now I'm doing things by phone, but there's the occasional in-person visit. And those are extremely rarely given now. Um, we're really trying to limit the uh, the entry of the of the virus into our clinic. I was, you know, doing walk-in shifts. That's not a longer thing. Um, you know, so most of my stuff is done by phone now and uh, I'm getting the computer ready to deliver things that way. But the other, the other big change is having two young children, like one son who's uh, disabled and my three-year-old, uh, my three-year-old daughter and having to juggle care uh, of those two kids who are small and require <laughs> a lot with, uh, with my wife, who's also home um, working from home and, Oh, it's been a, it's been a real strain. I was going to, I was going to add though, I, I was thinking, um, one last thing about what I what else I would do uh, to recommend the person who is um, suffering from something, and it would be just keep an eye out also for other individuals who are suffering. That's probably the greatest. Um, that's probably the easiest form of community one can one can form. There's of course one's fellow trainees in which you know a lot more of, but there's the occasional staff person too who you'll hear things about um, or a practicing person just. Uh, keep an eye out for people who seem to ha- have the same thing and try to rely upon their expertise and knowledge. Um, and eventually I think you'll be able to negotiate the more formal realms of that. I would say also, it's not the wrong thing to do to um, contact, to contact things like the physician's health program. I did that, uh, you know, myself, I, I did that myself um, to get better, but of course, you know, the writing was on the wall that I, that I needed that. Or I got to say um, they are, not about uh, punishment. They're entirely about, uh, at least my experience was, they're entirely about getting you better. You know, they look upon it that way and getting you uh, able to practice in a health and safe, is so-called, you know, I don't like the word, but safe way. Hmm. Uh, so I don't want to demonize that program, which has um, given me quite a lot and uh, is, you know, responsible for me still being here. I want to encourage people who think about doing so, probably that's a sign that you should do so. Um, but I, I, I also want to uh, balance that with the knowledge that it brings some pretty significant consequences. The good news is, though, that once you do it, you begin to not care or you care less because uh, you got your life and, uh, you know, it's no longer it's no longer threatened. So you, you get a you get you get something out of the deal. And well, I guess I just want to remind our, our listeners, we're, we're talking here in Ontario, but of course, this is a, a national medical journal. So every province has its own 
physician health program. Is that correct? Or almost every, every province? I know of many, and I, th- I think that there is its equivalent in every province, but I do think my knowledge of the programs in the East Coast is uh, they may go by other names. Yeah, but I think there is basically that function. Yeah. What are you doing with COVID, Dorian? I am hunkered down. Uh, I work with a team called the Inner City Health Associates, which provides medical care to homeless shelters in Toronto. And I, I work in a, a shared care family physician clinic. So those those clinics have moved as much as possible to the online format as well. And I, I'm kind of getting used to it and, and learning the pros and cons of telephone calls, video, and getting onto OTN. So very much echoing your experience. Are you enjoying it? Um, tell you the truth, I I find I'm getting used to it. I like the in-person. I, I, did, I was unaware of how much we get from um, or I, how much I rely on body language and that and that visual communication to connect with someone, and I find it a lot more work to be honest, just dealing with the voice. So I'm still getting my head around it, learning and open to the possibility that this this medium has potential. But I certainly I'm certainly not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> so well, Shane, thank you very much for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Dr. Shane Nielsen. To read the Medicine and Society article he wrote, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.